Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Well, this week, the Federal Reserve, the U.S. Central Bank, is expected to lower interest rates as it grapples with low inflation and an economy that's starting to slow. But they're not the only ones. Wherever you look, central banks are pursuing easing policies. But does it make much difference when interest rates are already so low? Look at uh, Japan, for example, as we ask on this week's Debunking Economics podcast, has monetary policy had its day? Now, central banks everywhere have interest rates at or near all-time lows. Let's look at the European Central Bank as an example, because they've just met. They decided not to change their interest rates. They probably will next time. Uh, but they haven't done it yet, even though they're concerned that Germany, amongst others, might be heading into a recession. Almost certainly are. We know manufacturing production is way down across Europe. Uh, but the ECB deposit facility rate, that's the, the interest they pay for holding money uh, with their bank overnight, is minus 0.4%. So a, a, a high street bank pays the ECB to take their money, and it's been that way for five years. But the main refinancing operations rate, the MRO as it's called, is zero. This is how much banks pay when they borrow money from the ECB for a week or more. They pay nothing, provided they have the collateral. So, Steve, how can they go any lower when the ECB is actually paying the bank's to borrow money from them. And we've got negative interest rates. That's happening in a few places, like Japan, for example. For the last three years, you have to go back to 2010 before you see them at the dizzying heights of 0.1%. How long is this going to go on for? Uh, indefinitely. I mm. think uh, I'd, I'd give it something, uh, barring, of course, what I expect, which is an ecological crisis, a severe one, uh, which will force us to completely forget about monetary constraints and go hell for leather to try to uh, survive, uh, help civilization survive. Uh, until that happens, we'll have interest rates at zero, or in the banks, the central banks are trying to push it lower because, according to their economic models, that's the only way they can actually boost spending. Yeah. They enable to force negative rates on the public, not just on the banks. And, uh, and with that, uh, stimulate the economy. And I think, but that's, that's a nonsense, isn't it? That whole idea. I mean, if if if, yeah. if it's zero, or banks are, you, uh, I guess, the difference between not charging a bank and actually paying them to take your money, uh, if if they don't need it, they won't get it, will they? I mean, that surely is yeah. why we can look at monetary policy and say it's reached a dead end. I mean, the Taylor rule is obsolete. Oh yeah, I mean, it, it, it's. And this is the that's the, the important way to frame this whole thing because central banks have in their minds an equilibrium model of how the economy operates, mm. and that equilibrium model. And I I know I keep on emphasising it, but I've got no bloody choice but to that equilibrium model excludes the role of money, banks, and debt, money, banks, and credit completely. Uh, so that the, the real world where these things actually happen is what they're trying to manage with those policies, and. Their um, magic numbers have always been, and they look at the DSGE models and the Taylor rule as part of this, uh, is that they believe there should be a 2% rate of inflation, a 3% rate of economic growth, real economic growth, and a 4% rate of interest. Those are pretty much hardwired into their models, and they very reluctantly change them when they find things don't 
work out as they expect for some significant period. But that's 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 their um, uh, that, that's their yellow brick road. That's where it leads to dose numbers two, three, four, and. What they're finding is they always expect to have to be pushing the rate of inflation down towards 2%. They thought they'd be having excess wage demands or raw material prices rising, and they'd have to find ways to retard demand so that the price level would fall towards the 2% target. Mm. Of course, they didn't see the financial crisis coming, hit them like a brick, and I know that from speaking to some of the uh, modelers, uh, particularly in the Bank of England, but others, uh, they were completely blindsided by the crisis. They were partying about how great their management was, Wayne Dunning saying, what the F was that the next? Um, They still haven't revised the models to include the role of credit. Um, but but now the one thing that I find I'll, this will be a bit of the um, bend your mind part of the podcast that there is a tendency when you include credit in the system uh, there is a tendency for rising debt to get falling inflation heading towards a negative and that's the situation they're in and now they're trying to boost demand by actually turning interest rates negative for depositors. Right, give me that again. Yeah. So we've got rising debt. Uh, so inflation falls because, yep. well, I guess, explain why that's happening. I guess if we've got more debt, we uh, we don't want to spend as much. So that keeps prices subdued. This is the mind-bending part of it because one thing which came out of my very, very simple model of uh, Minsky's financial instability hypothesis, gee, I said that without actually falling over my own tongue. Um, they, that is, was an unexpected outcome that the increasing level of private debt was actually paid for by a lower workers' wage share of GDP. So I had a model in which uh, the only borrowing was being done by firms. The firms were using that money to build factories. They were not doing Ponzi speculation. And if there was a, a, a low level of capitalist desire to invest, then you would slowly converge towards an equilibrium. Uh, in the hunky-dory situation, a, a constant low level of private debt a constant wage of share of GDP mm. and a constant employment rate. So there's a stable equilibrium in there. The utopian vision. Utopian vision. Now, when, when I amped up the desire to invest, which, of course, is a positive thing. You want capitalists to want to invest. This is a capitalist system. They, mm. It is one because they invest and innovate and you want this to happen. When I ramped up the investment rate, a weird, two weird phenomena started to happen. The first was that there was a period of diminishing cycles in employment and what I was using at the time, a proxy for inflation, also diminishing cycles in the cause of inflation, which in the model ended up being the wages share of GDP. Um, And then the fluctuations would, and in the background, what you had was a rising level of debt. As the rising level of debt got more extreme, those diminishing fluctuations turned into amplified ones. So a period of diminishing cycles gave it a period of rising cycles and ultimately a breakdown when the level of debt uh, reached a level that the capitalists who were paying the interest bill on that debt didn't have enough of the share of income to finance it. And the reason that's failed is because the worker's share of rate of change of of GDP couldn't fall as fast as the banker's share was rising. And in the middle of all this, before you reach that crisis point, the, the firm share, the capitalist share of income, was fluctuating around a constant level. So the capitalists, from their point of view, everything was stable in the sense of cyclical, but cyclical around a, a horizontal constant trend in their income share. What was going down was wages share of GDP as the banker's share went up. And that is a what to call it, it's called an emergent property of a complex system. Mm. The, the, no, it is yeah. complex. So let's get just yeah. and, and, uh, at the risk of asking you to repeat yourself. 
<laughs> let's, but let's go through that step by step. So, so we we get to the stage where uh, capitalists want to invest. So, yeah. what, what what's the repercussion? Take me step by step by that, okay. because so for, for, so I can keep for, up. For, for members of the Patreon audience listening to this, if you go to the can, my the download page, I put on profstevekeen.com slash Patreon. I explain this verbally in the "Can We Avoid Another Financial Crisis?" Yeah, you'll find the electronic version there. Um, and so what st- goes on with you, you start from an initial position where I can start from, say, zero debt, which is where I start the model from for simplicity's sake. So zero debt and, say, 70% of income going to workers and 30% going to capitalists, which was the historic share back in the 50s and 60s. Then you have a desire by capitalists to invest more than they get in retained earnings and it's because you, mm. if you fall in the wages share, more is going to capitalists, there's more willingness to invest and they want to invest more than they have in retained earnings, have to borrow money from a bank. When they borrow money from the bank, that therefore means they've got to pay interest on that. So part of the income is now going to bankers and there's been a decline in the amount going to capitalists. As the boom continues, it drives to the point where there's a shortage of labour and if I generalise, there's a shortage of raw materials and things like that as well, but just in a simple, pure model, just the three-class model, workers, capitalists, bankers. Shortage in labour, meaning that work capital have to pay more to entice the part of the workforce that is not working into employment. So you start getting rising wages share, mm. and the rising wages share combined with the increased amount of money going to the bankers means that capitalist share falls below the level at which they wish to invest more than they earn. So they start investing less than they earn, which means... They, uh, they start paying their debt down a bit. It also means the level of investment drops and the economy starts to tank. Yeah. And then as it tanks, you get a falling uh, wages share because it falls below the point, employment falls below the point where workers are getting wage rises than are getting wage cuts. Uh, that starts to restore the banker's share, uh, to the, the capital share of income to get them back to the stage where they want to invest again. So this is the turning point, the bottom turning point in the trade cycle. But... When you have a high, uh, when you start with a high desire to invest, uh, each time you go through this boom and, and slump cycle, it starts with a higher share going to the bankers because you have some accumulated debt that was borrowed during the boom that is not completely paid off during the slump. So you get a ratcheting up of the debt level. Now, if you think about, and again, in a very simple model, you have, say, a fixed rate of profit at which capitalists wish to invest more than they have in retained earnings. Let's say it's a 3% rate of profit, uh, which in um, in the model that I use uh, where I've got a, a 3 to 1 ratio between uh, capital and output, that actually translates as a 9% profit share, which is mm. a lot. You know, they, they, mm. When they start with 30, they've got a, you have an investment boom starts off when they get 30%. So they're happy with a 3% rate of profit and 9%, 9% share of GDP. No matter what the remaining 80, 80, 91% is divided up between whoever. Well, when you start when it's all going to the workers, um, then the workers are getting, you know, 91% of that zero going to the bankers. Through one of these cycles, a certain amount of additional debt is accumulated. Let's say it's 10% of GDP is the debt level. That's you've got to pay interest on that. So that interest is subtracted from output and wages are also subtracted to give you that same level of desire, the same level of profit with a lower wages share and a higher banker's share. And this continues happening cyclically. Right. So what, yeah. what, So we're at the bottom of that then, aren't we? Although, I mean, we're seeing those signs, aren't we, in that there's, we're seeing growth slow, we're seeing, uh, we're seeing debt rise, uh, and we're seeing inflation low. 
Yeah, yeah. So, and this, this is when I this is I wanted now to take a leap from one the simple model to a slightly more complex model, and that's where the, in that model I was, I was worried you might do that. I, I but, thought you were. Yeah, okay. Because my question drink? was going to be before you do that. My question was going to be if we're at the bottom of that cycle, yeah. if it's a cycle, what is it that turns it around? Well, it's just the cycle. It, 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 each extreme, it's a change in the distribution of income. When you get to the top of the boom, uh, work, wages which have been uh, leading up to them and have been falling uh, start to rise, and that rise in wages share plus the money you're paying to bankers means the amount going to capitalists falls below the level where they wish to in, invest more than they have in retained earnings. So that's, that's the turning point in the boom. Mm. The turning point in the slump is where wages have fallen sufficiently that uh, the share going to capitalists is restored to the level at which they wish to invest more than they earn. So they start borrowing money from bankers again. And that and that's the turning point at the bottom. And that keeps on happening all the way through the, the period of cycles, a number of cycles, not just one. No. And with, with a higher desire to invest, each time the boom and slump reaches the slump period, the level of private debt has risen above what it was at the bottom of the previous boom, the previous previous slump. And so you get a ratcheting up effect over time. Right. So a central banker would say, well, that's fine. Obviously, when you're at the bottom of that uh, cycle and you want to drive that investment, uh, then you want interest rates to be low. Um, no, it's not. that's not what happens because, and this is why they're getting the more complex model, the the cap, first of all, the central bankers aren't even looking at this. And mm. certainly before the crisis, they just completely ignore the level of private debt. That's one thing why I take my hat off to the Bank of England, the Bundesbank. Uh, one person in the RBA, uh, Clark, I think it is, um, and uh, and the Norwegian Central Bank for admitting that they should be keeping, they should have credit in their in their model to that haven't yet done it. Right. But anyway, they, they're not looking at that at all. And the so, Fed's doing this big review, haven't they, of where monetary policy has gone wrong. Oh, so, I mean, yeah, but, I mean, who have they invited to it? <laughs> Same me? old crowd. Where's my, where's my invite? Where's my invite? Mm. I must have misplaced it. Good point. Um, you know, it's just the same old bloody crowd. Uh, I mean, as much as I like, as I've had a good deal with Olivia Blanchard, he's about as radical as it gets inside there. And, uh, you know, one of my friends said, Olivia's uh, a DSG man through and through. He... He has a he has a um, hot rod. Uh, he can do the zero to a uh, to a um, you know the, he cover the quarter mile as fast as anybody. You put a corner in the way, he's in deep trouble. Mm. And, and and that's that. He's the best of the lot. They're asking about what to do in terms of how to change monetary policy. So you know, you're not going to get there. But they are looking at employment, aren't they? This um, and and that's obviously. I mean, okay, they're ignoring debt, but the the, the role of employment is uh, part of this. So even the RBA, for example, are saying, well. We, uh, we we know that uh, we're not going to get uh, inflation kicking in until we see uh, tightening in the labour market. We need to keep a, a closer eye on that. Um, so well, this, 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 this is the point about what's what, what the low inflation and low interest rates because they're puzzled as to why we're not getting any um, increase in wages demands despite a high level of employment. Mm. And the, the, you can make statistical arguments about that. So like in Australia's case, for example, the level of underemployment is about three times the actual recorded unemployment rate. And America has a similar, not as big a gap, but a similar gap. So it's partly that uh, there are so many discouraged workers that haven't yet been brought back into the workforce that the uh, as an unemployment indicator looks great, the, the employment indicator doesn't look so fabulous. So it's partly the employment rate being the issue. But I also found when I generalised my model to include price dynamics, I then also had uh, a little factor that the rate of, in- rate of interest had a, re- had a base component which was set by the central bank 
and then an inflation-adjusted component where, with a lag, the banks would react to a high rate of inflation by upping their margins so that their their real rate of interest was positive. They, if you, if you don't have that adjustment, then there'll be periods where the real rate is substantially negative. And uh, with that adjustment, what, what, it, what turned out to drive that margin was also the wages share of GDP. Now, when you got to the stage of an extended amount of private debt, which is where we are in the real world, of course, uh, with that extended rate of, 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 uh, of, of private debt, the distribution of income switched between bankers and, wage, and wages also had the side effect that the, because uh, I, I had three factors determining my wage level, by the way, I better explain this, and this is going to get slightly head spinning. Phillips did not have a linear Phillips curve, point one. Phillips, who, Bill Phillips, who gave us the idea of a relationship between the, uh, the level of economic activity and the rate of change of, of, of nominal wages, he also had the rate of change of the unemployment rate as an important factor there and the impact of imported inflation, what he called a wage price spiral. This is completely left out of the conventional treatment of Phillips. It pisses me off to see people say Phillips, Phillips curve has died. There was no Phillips curve. There was a Phillips surface, mm. and, uh, and it's completely ignored by the mainstream. Phillips didn't actually mathematically model that because, A, he didn't have data, and, B, he was working with a handheld calculator, a hand-operated hand calculator. There's no way you could have crunched the numbers back in 1957 to include the three factors, so he just stuck with just one. Um, now, when I include that in the model, what I get coming out of it is a period of deflation. So you have a the, the as the wage share of GDP falls, the rate of inflation also falls, and you get to the point where you have, in my model, negative prices, uh, negative price change, deflation running at about two percent. At that rate, uh, you you no longer have the inflation adjustment for interest rates. All you're stuck with is the base rate. Now, the base rate, uh, the neoclassicals don't quite understand why, but that has been falling ever since Vockler put it up to about 17% back to stop the high inflation of the, uh, of the 1980s. And the recession that caused pretty much broke the power of workers in America. And, of course, we also had at the same time of the entry of China into the global market, so another massive deflationary force because... Uh, pr prices determined by American labour was was being displaced by prices determined by Chinese labour, paid one fifteenth or one thirtieth as much. So we had all these deflationary tendencies uh, on in addition to ones in my model coming into the real world, and now that base rate has gone zero, and the negative is, is just we're discussing, and they can't understand why not pushing the economy up. They're not looking at the debt burden that's sitting on top of it. That's completely ignoring mm. the elephant. They're not just not the elephant in the room. The elephant that is sitting on the capitalist in the room. Right. <clears throat> so until that debt is uh, eradicated, then this idea that the you know Taylor's idea that inflation is linked to interest rates uh, or or economic growth is linked mm, yep. to interest rates, we can just throw that out the window. Yeah, we can. Now, look, this is, um, mate, I've, I sometimes think you've probably read more textbooks than I, more economic theory than I have, because uh, you did write about Taylor's model as well. Taylor, Taylor was, uh, when you first- Man, is still, uh, still alive. Who was, for a short while, was part of uh, uh, the, the advisory team for the current president. So, uh, and, he, and he's still taken very seriously in American economics as yeah. well. 
Yeah, I think what he basically mm. said was if you take a look at the uh, policy of the, of the Fed, you can actually model it by a little rule that says they have a 2% rate of inflation target and, uh, and they change interest rates at roughly twice the rate of the change of the rate of inflation. And that sort of retrospectively modelled what the Reserve Banks did and they automated their model of what they should do in the future as well. And the belief was this would actually keep the economy on an equilibrium path. Now, of course, as usual, as a neoclassical model, Taylor's model had no role for the private sector, no role for credit, no role for debt, no role for money. Mm. And unfortunately, we live in the real world and those things matter. And he's not an advocate of uh, of government intervention, really, either, or, or stimulus. Oh, yeah, totally anti, yeah. And yet, doesn't that seem like, I mean, let, let's, you know, the, the obvious answer obviously is, you know, let's try and eradicate debt, but that's not, you know, in, in our lifetime, Steve, uh, unless, there's a, unless your work is... Uh, immensely successful and let's hope it is there's not going to be any idea of a, de- of a, of a debt jubilee so we have no. to central banks have to work with what they've got so the, and they have tried with stimulus they've tried with 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 quantitative easing although yeah. increasingly central banks now are saying well actually it's not up to us it's up to governments um they've yeah. got to put stimulus into the economy like donald trump did now we can criticize donald trump for uh, you know pushing the uh, the u.s government into into debt or the fact that his tax cuts were favored the wealthy rather than uh, the people who really needed it but i mean it looks like that um uh, you know that sugar hit has helped the, uh, the the us economy and that they're doing a little bit better than the rest of the world and i wonder how much of that is because he pumped all this stimulus into the economy Oh yeah, that's true. I mean, the sugar, but the sugar, sugar, you know, sugar hit is a pretty good way of describing it because mm. it certainly wasn't a, yeah. it, it wasn't a protein boost yeah. uh, because all the money went to the wealthy. But the wealthy spend a bit. Uh, you know, there's the, the occasional yacht they buy. Saw some monsters in Sydney Harbour when I was there, by the way. Yeah, uh, saw that money. <laughs> oh my god! Uh, but anyway, that that that's that spending. You know, hires workers to give them the fifty staff or so to manage the yacht. It uh, hires workers to build the yacht in the first place, et cetera, et cetera. So that spending does spill over a bit into the real economy, but it's about a one for 10 bug. Every trillion you get in, maybe you get 100 billion out. Mm. And uh, rather than getting a multiplier, you get a divider in terms of the impact. But it has had an impact. But, of course, their vision of what would happen was, and you can find Bernanke on this and Greenspan as well, the wealth effect. And the idea was as we drive up share prices, and that was the literal part of the objective, all this crap about it not being objective, you can just read what they had to say. Uh, the reason for QE was to get a wealth effect. As people have more, the assets are worth more, they tend to spend more, that will stimulate the real economy. Now, of course, if you really want to stimulate the real economy, you give it to people who are poor. Yeah. They spend 100% of it, you get a dr- dramatic increase in the circulation of money and that gives you far more bang for your buck. You'll get, you know, out of your trillion, you might get one and a half or two trillion of stimulus. But you pour it to the rich, you give them a trillion, you might get 100 billion or 200 billion back, but you still get it. But of course, it's far less effective than they expected. And it also has increased the level of inequality that we got in the in the in the boom in the first place. So well, it's, it's a crazy idea, and I'm sure you're right. It wasn't the stated intention, but it was the intention to push up the share price. And uh, and you know, Donald Trump has been saying, "Hey, look, isn't the economy great? Look how our uh, equity markets are going." But uh, yeah, but I mean, that is a bit of a nonsense, isn't it? Because they will reach a point. I mean, first of all, it's a very small proportion of the population who are benefiting, but it'll also yeah, exactly. reach a point where they're, where they're going to, you know, fundamentals are going to make investors go, well, look, we're not going to push any more money into uh, into the share market because our price to earnings ratios are all out of skew now. So mm. what do they do? They put the money in something else like property, I guess. Well, this is this is it's it's basically inflated asset bubbles. I mean, yeah. the American market bottomed at. Uh, I love the S and P that it had bottomed at six hundred and sixty six. That was cute. 
uh, <laughs> what, what is it, three, uh, more than three times that. It's risen that much in the meantime without any substantial change in the fundamentals. So what you now have, is, as uh, Robert Schiller points out, is the highest price to earnings ratio on American shares outside the 1929 bubble and the 2000 bubble. In fact, it's even higher than the price to earnings ratio in 1929. So if you're looking at the market and you're a value investor, you think, what the hell am I doing here? Uh, if you're a trend a trend investor, you, you have one answer, and that's the four words, don't fight the Fed. But what it means is then what the Fed does becomes incredibly important to maintaining the value of that market. So we see back at the end of last year when the Fed decided it would go from quantitative easing to quantitative tightening, oh, dear, mm. didn't the market have a problem? And uh, and that volatility then, which uh, as it happens, some of the hedge funds that use my ideas were very thankful to see that turn up, uh, that volatility scared the hell out of the Fed and it went back out and pulled out a quantitative easing. And yet, you know, tightening, pardon me. Yeah, and, and they may go back to quantitative easing. Well, certainly, I mean, the uh, later this week, we're going to see what the, the, the Fed is going to do. The in, uh, expectation is that they, they are going to drop interest rates. I mean, there's been some talk that they might drop interest rates. Uh, what they're, they're calling it an insurance move, uh, but there is some question as well. If the, if the, if the data has been so weak lately, maybe they should... Um, drop it by half a percent, uh, which they haven't done for a long, long time. Yeah, but yeah. but sounds like, from what you're saying, it doesn't make any difference what they do. Well, it does, it, uh, but not the difference that they want, nowhere near the bang they want for it, because, again, their vision uh, excludes the role of private debt. Yeah. So they are thinking that, look, I've, when I model this with my Minsky software, people have seen the loanable funds model that I've got on the website uh, numerous times. Uh, in that model, if where you have banks of financial intermediaries, which is the vision that neoclassicals have of them, massive change in the level of private debt make bugger all difference to the economy. You, you can ignore it. It's just one of those, you know, why bother uh, things about because the the intermediary role means that the change in the amount of money in the economy only affects aggregate demand if the person receiving the money has a higher propensity to consume than the person lending the money. And uh, and then, when, as Bernanke himself said, outside implausibly vast differences in the marginal propensity to consume, pure distribution should have no aggregate economic effects. When you change that to, and that, that's what the model have got in their heads, so they don't worry about the level of debt. But in the real world, uh, where the banks are extending the money uh, and creating it by, by the loan, and the interest rate rises, if you have a low level of private debt, that doesn't matter all that much. But if you have a high level, which we have right now, like America's level is uh, 1.5 times GDP, private debt is one and a half times the size of GDP, that increase in the interest rate seriously affects your willingness to take on more credit. More, and consequently, yeah. people stop borrowing the money, the credit demand falls, and the economy goes into a funk. And that's the cycle that they're in now. And I had to say it, um, but I, I predicted this back with the first edition of Debunking Economics in 2001, that the world would turn Japanese. This is the situation Japan had been in now for the last 25 years. Yeah, exactly. And but and how do banks make money out of all of this this situation banks seem to you know do well at making money but it but obviously all of this creates a a, a problem for them which uh, which central banks are, are very aware of because low interest rates well who's going to save any money anymore we don't do that anymore do we? we haven't really done that since the 1980s we borrow rather than save but if interest rates are so low then uh, you know with nobody depositing anything but also but also the banks not making money out of the out of the loans they give because interest rates are so much and if they have got any excess money let's take the situation in Europe if they want to park it in the uh, in the European Central Bank they've got to pay 0.4% to park that money there. So it surprises me that banks are actually making any money whatsoever. 
but they well, seem that, to be recording in enormous profits. Yeah, this, 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 well, the, the, it, it's the, the Ponzi scheme side of what they finance is doing yeah. the profits, which is why they're so fragile. And yeah, because it's, it's, okay, yeah, their argument, their thinking would be, and this is why we've seen marketing taking over banks. Why they, is they're they, buying shares. They're buying shares because that's where they're getting a positive return. So yeah, yeah. they're not making money out the loans anymore, as, as you're saying. They're not making as much because, I mean. Well, for a while, they were making just making the loans bigger, weren't they? They were saying, well, we're making yeah. such a small margin on these now. We've got to do twice as many. That's basically it. You've got, a, you've got a volume. This is, again, where understanding the bank creation of money is so important. Uh, in the, in the um, loanable funds world that neoclassicals think in, there is no volume component for the profits of banks. It's all a margin. They make a profit out of the difference between the interest rate they, they pay for deposits and the interest rate they charge on loans. In the real world where they create money, uh, then there's two factors. It's how much money they create and that margin. So if you've got a small margin, you can finally make up it by having a large amount of credit creation. But in the aftermath of the slump we've been through, credit creation is small, smaller than far smaller it was during the boom. For example, America's running at about a credit level of between 7 and 5% of GDP right now, declining in response to the interest rate rises. Before the crisis, it was 15%, and of course, with high interest rates as well. So the volume side of the business is much more, um, it's, it's almost gone for the banks compared to how it was before the financial crisis. So what they're doing is they're buying into the stock market. They're making money out of the rise in the asset value, the, the, the dividends that are coming back from, from those shares. Mm. They're buying back their own shares, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so that's a very fragile basis on which to have uh, sustained profits. And that's why even though I don't see a, a serious recession coming in terms of a credit slump, I do think the banks are incredibly fragile now because they are really dependent upon the central bank continuing to inflate the asset markets, which is the real way they're making money right now. Yeah, which is which can't go on forever, obviously. Like well, any- it can, unfortunately. This is the danger because, again, coming back to the creation of money thing, the central bank has an un- – and Bernanke said this and you know, Greenspan said it as well uh, – has an unlimited capacity to create money uh, when they're buying assets off the financial sector. So what happens during things like quantitative easing is that the banks, uh, the central bank is buying and selling bonds off the private financial sector all the time in what are called open market operations to try to keep the interest rate uh, on reserves within their target band, which is you know, like in America, was, I think it, 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 the bottom was about between 0.25 and 0.75. Now it's you know, up to about, they tried to push, it's up to the 2 3% level. It's going to come down from that. But that's what they're doing the open market operations for. And in the sum, uh, if the open market operations mean they buy more bonds off the private banks and they sell back, then there's money creation which goes into the financial sector. In, in quantitative easing, they promised that they would be on the buy side of open market operations to the tune of $80 billion per month, which is roughly $1 trillion per year. Now, that, of course, meant that uh, with the financial institutions receiving that money, as financial institutions, can only buy assets, other assets with them. They can't buy bonds because the government's buying a trillion net per year of the bond creation. So they buy shares and partly they buy property as well. Right. But I mean, but my point was that can't go on forever because property will reach a point where people go as they have that these prices, the, the price has now escalated so much. It's just ridiculous. And, and similarly with the, with the share market, people will be looking at the price to earnings yeah, ratio and yeah. say, well, this, this can't go any higher because it's, it has no semblance in reality. And there's an underlying value here, which hasn't changed. 
Yeah, well, the property property market, I think I agree with you on that front, but the share market, and the Feds, if you, if you look at the demand for shares, it's you know the volume of money coming in versus for, for buying versus the volume going out for selling. If the financial sector is, is as it was during QE, effectively providing a trillion dollars additional volume on the way in, then you've got a buy pressure which overrules mm. the issues of fundamentals and so on. And if the Federal Reserve is determined enough it keep on doing this indefinitely. It has bottomless pockets for the creation yeah. of money. So much greater and, demand, same number of shares. Yeah, and, and that what you mean is, you, and of course also you've got share buybacks happening at the same time. Yeah, so less shares. Yeah, yeah so there's less shares. So you, mm. you've got a real effect driving up the price and you've got to the stage where the PEs are crazy. Yeah. Anybody looking at it, I'm not going to go from here, but hell, the price is, if the Fed continues buying, the price will continue rising. What do I do? And that's where the old saying comes in, don't fight the Fed. So a final thought then. Tell me if this is a, a stupid idea or not. We we know that the ECB is looking at the <clears throat> excuse me, the idea of tiering their interest rates. So, uh, And they're just saying this because they don't want banks to face a, a negative interest rate for their, for their excess money. So they're thinking, well, maybe we'll, we'll offer a different rate for them. But couldn't we also find a way where we actually tier interest rates, differentiate them, basically, depending on how the money is is used. So we offer higher interest rates for deposits, and this could be done through the central bank, but is the way that they could pass this thinking on to high street banks. So you offer uh, a higher interest rate for deposits, so encouraging people to save. Uh, and, and if they're doing that, then they may be less inclined to uh, put it into Ponzi schemes. Lower rates for loans, uh, so people then may say, we start thinking, well, okay. And, and the only reason you offer lower rates for loans is because you don't want to um, make the market collapse because people have got so much in debt. And I guess over time, you could gradually increase that. But if you had that differential, then people might say, well, hang on a second, I'm carrying this big loan. I'm not paying a great deal for it. But if I deleveraged and uh, and started saving, then I'd be getting more money that way. And uh, could could you shift the balance by banks doing something like that? No, (laughs) because... uh, I thought it was a great idea when I was doing it. (laughs) And you, one word, (laughs) all that thought. (laughs) It's because you will, if that's happy, this is the whole problem of the idea of saving at the individual level applied to saving at the, the national level, because when you save... Uh, if you just what you, you what you're doing is deciding to spend less money, so your expenditure falls, mm. um, and therefore if your income remains the same while expenditure falls, you'll get a positive difference through which you call savings. But if there's if you if you clarify by imagining a world in which money is constant for a period of time, if you have more of that money in your bank account, then by definition, everybody else has precisely as much less. So your saving causes dissaving by other people at the aggregate level. The aggregate level of savings is zero. What you do by encouraging savings is slow down the turnover of money. Yeah, because yeah, well, the banks yeah. do something with it, of course, but of course they don't. Uh, they don't. Uh, that that just means, in fact, more money is going to. The, in fact, I presume that's the case. Don't we have increased savings? Then more money is still going through the finance sector. They win whichever way you look at it. Yeah, well, they're getting out of the finance sector that actually matters, and this is what the, the main role of government bonds is. And when you when you don't actually have government money creation, the government bonds take, which is sold to the financial sector, mm. liberate money that's in the financial sector and circulate it to the real economy. So those sorts of roles are there. But I think, mate, I think we this is going to be me saying we should uh, leave this one for, for a bit later because we're running long on time. We haven't really hit on one little point. So this is a point for a second podcast. Um, the, the, what, what's, what's with these negative rates? Why are the central banks charging negative rates to the private banks? And what would they like to have happen after that? And that's 
a very interesting story. I think we should cover in another podcast. All right. Well, Tony, we, okay, we'll do that in a couple of weeks then, shall we? Uh, yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll move on. We sort of, we sort of moved, we, I think we had an interesting change. We sort of moved away from that negative rate thing. 30-second answer uh, to, to the final question then. What yeah. should uh, – obviously part of it is in their models they need to uh, uh, to be studying the role of debt in all of this. If they did that, what should they? what would be the policy tool that they would use? Here we go back to the net, uh, the, the modern debt, Jubilee. Mm. That's, that's the only tool. You've got to find a way of reducing the private debt burden because that's what's causing the private sector to spend so slowly. Uh, and you've got if you don't get that down, then you won't get a, a boost to the economy and you won't get out of that income distribution trap either. But, of course, as you said at the beginning, the odds of that are somewhere close to zero. Um, so they, they won't do that. And that's why they're trying to encourage the governments to go into fiscal policy because they're saying our monetary side is not working. Yeah, absolutely. An admission to failure. Absolutely. All right. Very good. Uh, we'll catch you again next week. Thanks, Steve. Okay, Thanks, And I hope you enjoyed that as much as we did, clearly. Uh, that's it for the Debunking Economics podcast for this week. I'm Phil Dobby. He's Steve Keen. See you again soon. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy the Y-Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search the Y-Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.